dropping on my face. He's the man, he's the man, watch that. He's the man, he's the man, watch that. He's the man, he's the man, watch that. Hey, you're listening to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, this week, I'll be reviewing the pilot episode of Columbo, and it got me to thinking about how unlikely a star Peter Falk was. It has nothing to do with talent. He's well-established as one of the finer actors of his generation. But it's been drilled into us by the entertainment industry, the emphasis put on looks, especially in television. And Columbo looks like an everyman. In fact, many of the leads in the 1970s look like an everyperson. Carol O'Connor is Archie Bunker from All in the Family. When was the last time you saw someone who looked like him on television? You know, outside of a Trump rally. Gabe Kaplan as Mr. Carter from Welcome Back, Cotter. Not many male actors with a perm are showcased on TV these days. B. Arthur is Maud from, well, you know. Outside of Grace and Frankie... How many 50-plus-year-old women are in leading roles? And I want to be very clear. I'm not making fun of the appearance of any of these accomplished actors. I'm actually advocating to see more diversity in talent. I'd rather watch incredible actors who look like every person turning in strong performances than seeing pretty faces mugging for the camera. I think in the 80s, with the emergence and popularity of MTV, a stronger emphasis was put on photogenic singers and bands, It's apropos that the first video played was the Buggles video killed the radio star. I think that mentality filtered its way into scripted programming with Friends, Gossip Girl, True Blood, and certainly in unscripted. Does anyone on the Jersey Shore have more than 3% body fat? If Columbo was made today, you know it would star Ansel Elgort, right? I know I've beaten this drum a couple of times, but diversity is a good thing in all aspects of our society, but especially in entertainment. We're in homes across America. You want people growing up seeing others that look like them, that represent them. It makes everyone feel that they have a place in our society. And with all the cable channels and the plus services, there's no excuse not to. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It. Two stars Watch at Your Own Risk. Three stars Standard Fare. Four stars Worth Checking Out and five stars must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. These are my ruminations and observations of the pilot episode for Columbo from 1971. So how'd I miss it? Well, I wasn't born. That's a good start. But even in reruns, I never watched it, which is surprising because I like mysteries. In fact, I'd watch other similar programs like Murder, She Wrote or The Masterpiece Mystery on PBS. And I wasn't a big reader, but the books that I did read were like The Hardy Boys and other mysteries like that. 
fact, I was so intrigued by the genre that I actually opened up my own detective agency when I was seven. I didn't have any real cases or clients, but every so often I'd hide something of my parents or grandparents and then force them to pay me 25 cents to find it. And miraculously, I did. So I had a nice little scheme running there. And as I've mentioned before, one of my favorite film genres is film noir, which was always about a hard-nosed, hard-drinking detective looking for that one case to redeem himself. I think the reason why I chose to watch Columbo, outside of the fact that I've never seen it before, is that my old boss would constantly do a Columbo impression in the office, so I knew I had to get around to it at some point. It was co-created by Richard Levison and William Link. The pair met in junior high, and over their 40-year partnership would team up on Mannix, Ellery Queen, and Murder, She Wrote, along with a slew of TV movies. The character of Columbo would debut on an episode of the Chevy Mystery Show, which was also turned into a stage play. Then two pilots were shot in 1968 and 1971, before officially being greenlit as a series which debuted that September. The episode was directed by... Steven... Spielberg? Never heard of him. Obviously one of the most influential directors. You know the films. Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Jurassic Park, and, of course, producer of Back to the Future and The Goonies. Basically, my childhood in a nutshell. The screenplay was written by Stephen Bochco. He would go on to co-create some of the most popular series, including Hill Street Blues, Doogie Howser, M.D., L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, and the absolute gem of a series, Cop Rock. This is something to look out for, or not look out for, Marsha Wallace, actor and comedian best known on screen as Carol Kester in The Bob Newhart Show, and off-screen as the voice of Mrs. Krabappel in The Simpsons, doesn't appear in this episode, even though she's listed in the credits. Columbo stars Peter Falk, who was born and raised in De Bronx. When he was three years old, his right eye was removed due to retinoblastoma. He graduated as a star athlete and president of his class. He briefly went to college before serving as a merchant marine. He eventually earned a degree in political science and a master in public administration. While working in Hartford, Connecticut, he joined a community theater group before studying with stage actress Eva La Gallienne. He was the first actor to be nominated for an Academy Award and an Emmy Award in the same year and did it consecutively. In 1961, he was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Murder, Inc., and Outstanding Performance in a Supporting Role by an Actor in a Single Program for The Law and Mr. Jones. In 1962, he was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Pocketful of Miracles, and won Outstanding Single Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for The Dick Powell Show. He would go on to appear in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, The Great Race, Murder by Death, and his most beloved movie role, The Princess Bride. The episode begins at the office of Jim Ferris, one half of the world's greatest mystery writing team. He's visited by his partner, Ken Franklin. Together, they've written 15 books and sold 50 million copies thanks to their creation, Mrs. Melville. Ken is on his way to his cabin in San Diego when he decides to come by to apologize for blowing his cork. Think we need to bring back that expression. He brings a bottle of champagne and makes a toast to their divorce. Recently, Jim decided to end their partnership so he can write on his own. As they're drinking, Ken discreetly places a lighter on Jim's desk. Then, he mentions that the cabin has been finished for six months and invites Jim to see it. He initially declines the offer because he promised his wife, Joanna, that he would take her out to dinner and a show. With a slight twisting of the arm, Jim agrees to the overnight trip, and as they approach Ken's car, he mentions that he forgot his lighter. Ken returns to the office and trashes it. 
Before he leaves, he plants a list of names in a drawer. On their way to the cabin, they stop at a general store run by Lily Lasanka, who's a big fan of their writing. Ken asks Jim to wait in the car as he gives her an autographed copy of their book and picks up some supplies. When she asks if he's with a female companion, he lies and says he's alone. While there, Ken makes a call to Joanna and says that he left Jim at the office a couple of hours ago after signing the armistice to end their partnership. He says that he's calling her from the cabin with no mention of Jim being with him, and to reach out if she needs anything. The duo arrive at the cabin, which sits aside a pristine lake. Ken convinces Jim to call his wife and tell her that he's working late. While he's on the phone, Ken shoots him and hangs up. A few minutes later, Joanna calls the cabin, to which Ken answers. He tells her to call the police and he'll leave the cabin right away. Columbo arrives at Jim's office with his trademark tan raincoat. Here's a quote without context. I'll tell you what the secret is to a good omelet. No eggs, just milk. I can understand the appeal of Columbo. He's an everyman that's underestimated. People make particular judgments about his appearance and assume he's not as intelligent or perceptive. It shouldn't be a surprise that the direction was strong. There was a great establishing shot of the view from the office, which is pulled back to reveal the author at work, all the while hearing the typing as a backdrop. The writing was really compelling, probably my favorite aspect. There were some lines that could be considered throwaways that played an integral part of the plot later on. You have to pay attention to every detail, just like a detective. Now here's the part where I'm undecided. It's an interesting concept that the audience already knows who the killer is, and we're watching the onion peel as Columbo puts the pieces together. But my biggest problem is that Columbo hones in on the killer almost immediately. And as a trademark, he continues to badger and badger and badger that person until they finally slip up and reveal something that proves that they were the killer. I'm not sure if it's like that in all episodes, but it would be nice if Columbo was thrown off the scent or he questioned another potential suspect before going to the real suspect. I mean, the interplay is always fun to watch, and it's definitely entertaining, but all you're doing is waiting for that one fact that the killer gives up, that Columbo goes, aha, there it is. I feel like that concept would get old over time, but the series lasted 10 seasons, so what do I know? Now for a little trivial trivia. Jack Cassidy would play the killer in two additional episodes of Columbo. I would call that overkill. <laughs> the cinematography was captured by Russell Meddy, whose filmography includes Touch of Evil, That Touch of Mink, Imitation of Life, and won an Oscar for Best Cinematography Color for Spartacus. It was edited by John Kaufman, who worked on episodes of Beretta, The Rockford Files, The Bionic Woman, and Kojak. The score was composed by Billy Goldenberg, who wrote the music for episodes of Kojak, Rhoda, McLeod, and Ironside. The runtime is 1 hour 16 minutes. Episodes run between 70 and 90 minutes. It was originally part of the NBC Mystery Movie Block, which rotated between four series. I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. This rating might boost up the more episodes I watch. I still need a little convincing that Columbo just knows immediately who the killer is and badgers them into confession. That's somewhat far-fetched, no matter how good of a detective you are. The series was on for 10 seasons, 69 episodes from 1971 to 1978, then 1989 to 1990, with additional specials continuing through 2003. It won 13 Primetime Emmy Awards, including 4 for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series for Peter Falk. 
There was a short-lived spin-off called Mrs. Columbo, which lasted for two seasons, 13 episodes, from 1979 to 1980. If you've seen Columbo and have opinions on the series, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. In doing the research for today's review, I came across a couple of clips of Peter Falk. What a great personality, so genuine and down-to-earth. During his Emmy win in 1972, he made a funny acceptance speech. He didn't have a piece of paper. He didn't go through a litany of names that only 1% of people know. He did what entertainers are supposed to do. Entertain. So it got me to thinking about other memorable award-winning speeches that have stuck in my mind throughout the years. How can anyone forget Christine Lottie at the Golden Globes? In case you did, she thought her category was later in the program and she went to the bathroom when her name was announced as winner. In a moment of improvisation, Robin Williams darted on stage and padded until Christine Lottie appeared and had her moment of truth. Julia Louis-Dreyfus should win an award for all of the acceptance speeches she's ever made. I've selected one where Tony Hale, like the character in Veep, assists her on stage. But I could have chosen about six others as well. There was an ongoing gag where she and Amy Poehler would do some shtick together because they were nominated in the same category for years. And lastly, the brilliance that is Olivia Colman. There's just something different about the British, and I love it. I first saw her on episodes of Peep Show with David Mitchell, but it wasn't until Broadchurch that I realized how incredibly talented she is as a performer. She was genuinely surprised to win the Academy Award, and her speech was just as genuine. What are some of your favorite award-winning acceptance speeches? Hit me up on social using the hashtag MattWatchThat. All these clips are available in the MattWatchThat playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Defending Jacob, created by Mark Bomback, based on the novel of the same name by William Landay. It stars Chris Evans as lawyer Andrew Barber, whose son is the subject of an investigation when the school bully ends up murdered. Now, I'm not big on comic book movies. Granted, I'm in the process of writing one, so I'll have no problem reaping the benefits of their popularity. I think it's amazing what Marvel has done with the cinematic universe, and it takes special visionaries to pull it off. Am I right, DC? And while I liked Captain America and thought it had a different look and feel than other Marvel movies, I really liked Chris and Knives Out. I just got a whole new appreciation for him. His son is played by Jaden Martell, who co-starred with him in Knives Out. He also appeared in It, It Chapter 2, St. Vincent, and Midnight Special. I don't think I'd do a recommendation review for it, but he was in Metal Lords on Netflix, which is a pretty decent movie. It had its moments. His mother is portrayed by Michelle Dockery, best known from Downton Abbey. With those actors alone, you're bound to have some formidable performances, and I think that's what makes the miniseries so captivating. The pace was a little uneven, but it's still worth the watch. I'm not sure how faithful it is to the book because I don't read, but the ending of the series was very much left ambiguous, and I know that bothered some people, but I was fine with it. Defending Jacob was on for one season, eight episodes in 2020. It's currently available on Apple TV+. 
That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSaroski.com for the latest news and updates. And come back next time for the reviews, rants, and randomness. The series was on for 10 seasons, 69 episodes from 1971 to 1978, then 1989 to 1990, with additional specials continuing through 2013. Oh my god, the I'm so off on the years. What is wrong with me? Carol O'Connor is Archie Bunky from... Archie Bunky. Ugh. <laughs>